The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery. Life now with half a brain is, for me, is no different than anybody else. I've been married four years. I live on my own with my husband. I'm really glad my parents did what they did because I wouldn't be where I am now if I had had the surgery any later or had waited any longer. She went on and just did fantastic. And now, you know, it's just like this gorgeous video. And if people aren't crying tomorrow when they see this, I'll put it in the show notes so you guys can watch it. But you know, she got married. Here she is doing ballet. You know, it's not ballerina ballet, but she's doing it. And she's just on it. Like, how cool is that? That is so cool. I am a very positive person. A lot of times I'll joke that they took out the, the mean side of my brain and they only left the happy side. <laughs> In the previous episode of Noggins and Neurons, Stroke Engine A to Z Treatment Options, Pete and I began the conversation by answering a listener question. A listener wrote in asking for more information about the number of repetitions required for change to occur. Pete did a little bit more research and then we talked about what all of these numbers mean for real life recovery. We also talked about having a growth mindset to optimize learning and recovery. We shared some hints about our upcoming conversation with Dr. Tissell and his assistant, Marcus, of the EBRSR. Then we got into stroke engine treatments. We started off with virtual reality for the upper extremity. And of course, we brought in more information, including the Viewmaster and the Ramachandran rule. Then we talked about acupuncture and what it's effective for. And we learned that it's actually very good for dysphagia, improving cognitive function and insomnia. Then we talked about virtual reality for the lower extremity and the importance of measuring real-time data, looking at gait rhythmicity. We also talked about the new step and the Kinetron. What? So I got a funny story for you. Okay. So my college had a career development day and they wanted people to do, you know, an hour, an hour and a half on whatever they wanted to. And people were doing it on how to, how to run a good zoom meeting and mm -hmm. how to grab a great PowerPoint and a lot of other interesting things. And of course I pitched my crazy, how does the brain really learn? And how can we engage students if we look at it from a neuroscience perspective? Mm -hmm. And they said, okay, uh, we'll give you an hour and a half to do that. So I, uh, 
So I, I show up the, at the college today and I go to the room that I'm supposed to, it's in this big convention center. And I go to the room I'm supposed to be in and, uh, and the door's locked. So I call the lady that runs the whole thing. And she says, well, um, I said, well, when will the door be unlocked? And she said, well, um, at nine o'clock, they'll be coming in. And this is by the way, at, at one in the afternoon or 12 in the afternoon uh, at nine o'clock, they'll be coming in and they'll set up everything. So you have it ready. And I'm getting this weird vibe from her. And I realize I'm there a day early. <laughs> awesome. Like, and then I said to her, I-, I got a funny story. I'm out in front of the door waiting for somebody to unlock it. Like a an idiot. So, uh, so that was fun. But here's here's the the favor I have to ask you. Okay. So what I would like to do, because I know we had an agenda tonight, but I would like to do my entire talk for tomorrow, but uh, for oh. you, for an audience of one, and that way I get to practice it. That's a great idea. You like that idea? I do. But I do expect you, Deb, to interrupt a lot and ask a lot of questions so that I have a sense of whether it's getting through or not. And Okay. So just up right up front, I think I've mentioned this before. I tend to be a processor. Like I hang on to every word and then tomorrow I have a thousand questions. Huh. So I hope it doesn't go that way now. I'm sure it won't. I, don't, I think it'll be okay. Okay. Are there any visuals that I get to see for this presentation? But we could do that. Just talk me through like how I... Um, well, what I do should... you have? A PowerPoint? Yeah, I do. Okay. Well, pull up your PowerPoint. I got it up. Okay. Hit the share screen, which you're the host, so you should be able to do that. All right. Do you, you see, see that? that? Yep. Driving cortical plasticity? Yep. Yes. We did it. Awesome. Look at that. Two wins in yeah. less than two minutes. Well, that's that's what happens when you hang out with Deb. There's a lot of wins. Easy wins. I like them easy. Mm. <laughs> I don't know if that's good or not. Uh, it's good. You know what? I re-listened to one of the podcasts today. It was Doro and Lynette, I think Uh the second one. And we promised to have them back on when they had collected data from their new computer brain interface thing. Yes. So we we need to hop on that because I need to email them and see if they're going to be home next week so I can come visit. Are you seriously going to go there? I want to. And it's not too far of a drive or anything? It's It's about two hours from where I'm staying. So I think we mentioned this before. Do you mind if I mention where you're going? No, you can mention. So Deb's going to Florida without me. What? I am. I'm doing that. You're going to go see kids and grandkids and Mm. Doro and Lynette. I hope. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Yes. I'm so sorry to hear that, Deb. It sounds like a horrible trip. Yeah, it'll be rough. First first road trip in my new car that I've had for almost two years. Well, first serious road trip. It's it's gone to New Jersey, but it like I my cars love to travel. What car is it that you're driving? I have a Volkswagen Golf R. Is it fast? It it can go fast, yes. Okay, settle down. <laughs> it wasn't a challenge. Yeah. I just figured it was you. You like fast things, so I do. I like fast things, and it has six speeds, and it uh, you know it's fun to shift through the gears. Wow, it was. Yeah. It has six forward gears, and and it's a manual. Yes. Wow, I remember when my dad's uh, Alfa Romeo back in the seventies had five forward gears, and everybody was just absolutely amazed by that. Mm-hmm. So so yeah. six. Six is one more. I'm no mechanic, but that I think that's the way it works. <laughs> oh, but you know how the brain works. Yeah, well, we'll see. All right. So I'm going to do this talk for you guys. You get it for free. This is called The Brain and How It Learns Simplified. And it's for teachers, right? I'm going to be in a classroom. 24 people are showing up. It essentially sold out. So it's going to be cheek to jowl in this place. And it's the last day they're, they're doing it in person. The next day, they're doing the rest of the conference virtually because of the mask mandate and everything else and the Delta variant. So I oh. snuck in right under, who knows, maybe it'll be a super spreader event. We'll see how it goes. I'll oh, probably- I don't think so. I don't yeah. think it will. I think we'll be okay. Yeah, me too. So yeah, the brain and how it learns simplified driving cortical plasticity. Okay, let's get to it. And I was just going to give a, a quick uh, perspective on on the fact that I have done, and I've already screwed up this slide, so that's good that I know this. I've done 700 talks, CEU talks from 2010 to 2020, and this is the first live talk I'm going to have done since March of 2020. So I'm super happy to be here. Wow. Well, I'm not super happy, but tomorrow, that's what I'm going to say. I'm yeah. super happy to be here. Mm-hmm. And so just as a brief overview, I work in the PTA program. And I've been in clinical research 
for a long time. Started in 1999 at the Kessler Institute. This can be boring for you, Deb, because you know all this. And I went there till 2002. I was a research associate there. We were looking at brain injury, brain injury recovery. And then a couple of us, Steve Page and I, moved off to University of Cincinnati and spent um, from 2002 to 2011 at University of Cincinnati. We had a lab in the, the Drake Center, which probably means nothing to you, but it's uh, a big rehab hospital. So this talk is going to be in Dayton. In, uh, they'll know about the Drake Center because it's the biggest rehab hospital around. And then in 2011, we peeled off and Steve brought the um, lab up to Ohio State. And I worked there until 2018, the whole time doing tons and tons of CU talks. As you can see, this is my book. I'm going to pitch it a little bit and tell, tell them about how um, publishers suck and they want to take every last percentage point from you. And I'm in negotiations for the fourth edition. So this is Stronger After Stroke. And then I have a, a new podcast out um, with my good friend, Deb Battistella. She's an occupational therapist. And we talk about the same thing I want to be talking about today. So if you listen to podcasts, you care about brain injury, it's probably a good one to listen to. That got weird because I'm advertising podcasts and podcasts, which seems weird. They're, they're well, Already, they're already here. I know, but I sometimes think that it helps people to know why you're talking about this if they know your background. I love hearing what people do, but maybe that's because I'm an occupational therapist. Well, I, I think because my talk is going to be so unusual tomorrow compared to everybody else's talk, which is about didactic stuff, I guess. Um, yeah, and yours is... The most it's a, important one. It's a, it's a little bit out there. So we'll see how it goes. Anyway, so here's a definition of learning. What is learning in simple terms? So uh, the activity or process of gaining knowledge by skill. Sorry, let me start over. Let me actually start this whole slide. Up. Okay. You guys are all educators and I'm sure you know there's whole books written about learning and um, theses. Is that the plural of thesis? Theses? I think so. I think so too. I want to stick with it. And there's whole tomes. Is that a word, tome? It's, it's whole, a big thing, a whole cottage industry trying to explain to us what learning is. But here's a pretty simple explanation. In simple words, learning, the activity or process of gaining knowledge or skill by studying, practicing, being taught, or experiencing something. Great. Okay. What is the circulatory system in simple words? The system that contains the heart and the blood vessels and moves blood throughout the body. Now, what's the difference between those two definitions? Well, the one about learning doesn't talk about the main organ that helps you learn. The circulatory system, the first thing it talks about is the heart. So that's what I want to talk about today because I have a different definition, sort of more neuroscience-y definition of learning. What is learning in simple words? Changing the structure and or function of neurons in the brain. It's a classic definition. So you're either changing the structure by adding new dendrites or adding new synaptic connections. Sometimes neurons will even travel a little ways to get to their, their best friends or the axon gets longer so they can reach out. That's the structure. The function is, you know, maybe the neurotransmitter soup changes a little bit or the molecules change between the synaptic connections. There's a bunch of different ways to change function. So there's a lot of words for neuroplasticity. You know, sometimes in these later books, they'll talk about, yeah, this is learning. And, and then they'll sort of tiptoe into the word neuroplasticity. They'll talk a little bit about, you know, synaptic connections or something like that. And then they immediately retreat. But in later ones, I've noticed in these longer articles about learning, they will go into the neuroscience just a little bit. And then again, they retreat back to where they feel safe. But some of the words for learning that neuroscientists use are neuroplasticity. Sometimes they'll split the word neural plasticity, cortical rewiring, cortical plasticity, cortical reorganization, brain rewiring. There's a bunch of them, but they all come down to learning. That was wanna, fancy. That's fancy, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, okay. Now, what I want to talk about is motor learning. Oh. Yeah, motor learning. And people go, well, why would you talk about motor learning? We're in a college. But the thing is, motor learning is the original template for all learning. If you take something like writing, it's moving letters around in your head to make words that you then move around in your head to make sentences that you move around to make paragraphs and so on. And from an evolutionary standpoint, we grew up as hunter-gatherers and we were in an ever-changing outdoor environment moving. And so the template for movement was then sequestered by different things like language. Um, you move your mouth, you, you conjure up the words through movement, writing clearly, things like architecture, just about everything is thought up in our head as a movement before we actually do it. But you know, as educators, you may not like the idea that, that people that move well, for instance, are smart. 
but they are. They have a hypertrophy of the motor and sensory cortices in the brain. And it's just not an intelligence that we appreciate very much unless they make a million dollars and then we complain that they're making too much money. But if you were that smart, maybe you'd be making that much money. I'm going to throw that insult down, right? I think you should. (laughs) I think I should too. And just to prove to you that motor learning is cognitive, it has its own Wikipedia page. And I threw up a page, the Wikipedia page for motor cognition. There it is. So you can't, you can't argue with Wikipedia. It's there, right? So if a teacher goes to a neuroscientist and says, what's the best way to get people to learn? The neuroscientist, first thing they'll say is that the worst environment in which to learn is the typical classroom. And it's a picture of the classroom. One person's dead. They're, they're lying on their desk asleep. Why? So it turns out that the brain hates it when the body is sedentary. When we're physically active, the brain is pump full of something that supports learning. Yes. Uh, a question in the class? Wait. I know what that is. Oh, what is that? It's BDNF. That's right. It's brain-derived neurotropic factor. Hopefully this doesn't happen tomorrow. We got a <laughs> rigor in the class. Hey, look, young lady, do you want to just come up here and teach class? Is that what you want to do? Yes. Uh, yes, I do. You can. Well, next time you can come on out here to Ohio. Wait, when are you going to be in Ohio? Thursday. Thursday. Oh, okay. <laughs> You're just driving through though, right? I have relatives in Ohio, so I'm going to stop for dinner. Uh-huh. I might sleep overnight. And they have a Tim Hortons in this little, tiny, rural town. And there's a Tim Hortons. So anyways, back to that, your lesson. No, that's great. What are they? Are they aunts or uncles or cousins? Have, or? Yeah, all of that. All mm-hmm. that. Wow. Yeah, I have two. I have two aunts who are are still living. They're in their nineties. Really? And mm-hmm. how are they doing? One does very well. The other one is. I mean, she's okay. She just she lives in assisted living. Yeah. Yeah. That could be okay. Yeah, I mean, it, she's happy. So yeah, she's doing well. Good. Good. Yeah. Well, good for you. You're you're a good uh, niece. You're a good niece. Yeah, I try yeah. to be. Okay, good. I love them and I love I love that town. So what what's the name of the town? Marietta, Ohio. I've heard of Marietta. Isn't there a college there? Marietta College. They're known for their baseball. Uh-huh. I think my mm-hmm. son looked at that college. Yeah, huh. it's a great school from what I hear. I had, yeah. I didn't go there. Yeah, I mean, who cares? I got a Tim Hortons. <laughs> well, exactly. Exactly. Hello. Hello. So yeah, brain-derived neurotropic factor. That's right. We have a ringer in here. So um, I'm going to actually explain it this way. So there's this thing that's pumped into the brain when you're moving, and it's uh, brain-derived, which is a fancy way of saying it's secreted by the brain into the brain. And it's a neurotropic factor. So neuro is neurons, and tropic means bigger, like tropic, you know, like muscle hypertrophy. Like So it's a brain-derived neurotropic factor. So how do you get your hands on this stuff? Well, one way is to be born. It comes out right after birth. Why? Because the infant's brain is trying to radically rewire very quickly. The whole visual cortex has to wire because they've been in total darkness. And you know they come out of the womb and they look down at their arms and they go, oh, I got these two things. Look, they move around. I have control over them. And, and they say, that's fun. And then they look at their legs and they go, well, they move around too, but they don't do anything. I don't like those. And then they look at uh, the different people that come into their lives and they say, who are you? And what's that smell? And how's that taste? And so infants are really good at faces very, very early on because they want to know who's feeding them. But you know, you guys haven't weren't born yesterday, so you don't have BDNF in your brain because you weren't just born. So how else can you get it? It comes out right after brain injury. And it turns out right after brain injury, first three months or so, you get so much BDNF in your brain that neuroscientists say that the brain of people that have had a brain injury is in an infantile state because like an infant, it's chock-a-block full of brain drive neurotropic factor. So that's good. And it accelerates recovery. Now, one of the things that people with brain injury often talk about is their brain injury day as their rebirth day. And that's why because they really have been reborn with brain-derived neurotropic factor. Uh, But you guys hopefully haven't had a brain injury lately. So how else can you get it? With exercise, how much exercise? Three minutes of relatively intensive cardio training. So uh, for the therapists out there, it's about a 13 on the Borg scale. But you know, it's it's different for everybody because for somebody who's 80 years old, it's going to be different than if they're 25 years old. And most of you people here at the college, you're going to be training more 25-year-olds than you are 80-year-olds. So, you know, I work in the PTA program and the students are moving constantly. So that's not really a problem. But if you want your students to concentrate a little bit more, um, you know, I'm, I'm hyperactive. I was diagnosed hyperactive as a kid um, back when they called it, called it hyperactivity. Now they call it attention deficit 
disorder because, you know, they weren't selling enough drugs with just hyperactivity sounds cool, but deficit disorder sounds like you need more drugs. And so that's why they did that. I'm convinced, but I was not wrong to be running around as a kid in the classroom because it turns out that's the way the brain operates. So happy to be vindicated. Thanks, neuroscience. Any questions? Hey, smart lady in the back. Do you have anything? Well, you know what I have to say, teacher? Yes, ma'am. I started listening to this audio book called Spark. Mm. Oh, Rady, John Rady. Yes. He get, he gets a card. Okay. Well, he talks. <laughs> okay. So it's, it's I'm not going to lie. It's been a few months since I was listening to it, but there is a school. What's the state? What state are they in? Do you know? The school because that I don't he, remember. There that is, he works for? He doesn't. He doesn't work there, but it's a school where they had poor performance. The students had poor performance. Mm, yeah. And was it a high school or a grammar school or both? School system. It was some school system. Okay. But and but it wasn't a college. No, it wasn't oh. a college, okay. but this could be done. I mean, at the college level, but they started an hour of exercise before class and student test scores increased. So when I learned about the BDNF, I figured that's what it was. Yeah. I mean, John Brady is is great. And and he really gives those of us who are hyperactive uh, a sort of way of looking at the world that makes more sense. I think we talked about during our sleep episode about how when schools open up 45 minutes to an hour later, mm-hmm. scores go up because kids mm-hmm. can sleep longer. Yep. So what? It, why is it so hard to have people get their heads around the fact that people should sleep and exercise? It's What was the three? We came up with three legs of the, the stool. It was sleep, exercise, and diet. I mean, come on, let's not make it complicated. Well, it doesn't take long to build habits. And if these habits are, are started when we're young, then changing a, a habit is more difficult than starting a new, just learning correctly from the beginning. And, you know, I I don't know why the people in charge, especially of education, are so against doing things differently. Yeah, they're they're behind the curve. Mm -hmm. They are. They think, I don't know, it seems like some people think that the general population doesn't know this, but people do know this, but we just seem to go along with it anyway. It's the collective wisdom of evolution. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like we know that we should be moving because it Mm -hmm. doesn't feel right. And it turns out the more you sit, the more colorectal cancers, the Mm -hmm. more depression, the more anxiety, and the more diabetes. And they can relate this directly to to times that we sit for commutes. So it's not Mm -hmm. hard to figure the stats out. The more, the longer you commute, the, the more bad things happen. Did I tell you I went up to the school and nobody was there? I'm like knocking on the door. I, I, that's an hour away, an hour away, and an hour back. And all I had to do was all I had was knock on the door. Oh boy. Well, I'm sure you weren't sitting too long. I mean, other than in the car. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, so BDNF, that's one big one. The other one is, and there's a picture in front of everybody. And the one young lady is on her desk in this big lecture hall and she's got her head down on her backpack and she's snoozing. Well, sleep is essential for consolidating whatever they learn. You know, when you exercise and your muscles hurt, it's called delayed delayed onset muscle soreness. You get it for a couple of days. That's muscles rebuilding. The sarcomeres, the contractile units in the muscles rebuild and, and they're sore for a while. They're telling you to lay off while we build and then you but you're supposed to work out during that period a little bit as well. Neurons are the same way. You stress them out and they react to that stress by triggering protein synthesis, which then forms new dendrites that then forms new synaptic connections, but the connectivity part of it happens when you're sleeping. So what I'm going to tell them tomorrow, Deb, and this is very funny line. I used to get lots of laughs from this line. It's a great line. Listen to this. So if you guys fall asleep today, I'll be absolutely thrilled. I'll assume that you're consolidating neurons in some new and different way. In fact, (laughs) if I see you starting to go off, I'll just start to talk in a monotone and just have you go, (laughs) people fall asleep all the time in in my CEU classes. It's just part of it, but I'm happy they're doing it. So sleep sleep and exercise is important. So this is a brain and on the screen, it's just this gorgeous brain. It's a fresh brain. Um, I don't know. Did you, you were in a cat, you were lady in the back. You were in a cadaver lab, weren't you? Did yeah. You, yeah. Did you uh, remember opening up the skull? So here's how I got to see the brain. I didn't see it in the lab where I went to OT school. I, I started to go to another school from the one I went to and somebody decided that I needed to take physiology again. It really didn't make any sense to me. And it didn't make any 
sense to the instructor either because I was doing so well in the class. But because I showed up every day when I was supposed to, like a good girl, I got to go into this really cool lab that they have where they have all these brains. So I did not get to see a fresh brain, but I got to see many brains. Very different. So what I'm showing you on the screen here, it's a fresh brain. And in fact, it's sitting on ice. It's so fresh. And it was very different from the color of the brains that you saw. Yeah. Because your brain, as it sits in the skull, is highly vascularized, full of blood. You have about five liters of blood in your body. And 20 to 25% of that five liters is running through your brain at any one time. So if you think about the brain you know, of your students or whatever, think about something that's vibrantly red. There's about 100,000 miles of blood vessels running through this. The other thing that you would notice is that it has the consistency of jello. Sometimes they say tofu. It's that kind of gelatinous kind of thing. And that's a problem if you hit your head. Well, I played four years of high school football, and this was a problem because, as you can see, and there's a picture, an animated GIF of it moving around in a skull. The top of the skull is very smooth. If you look at anybody's head, you can see it's nice and round. But where the brain sits is highly convoluted, it's sharp. And that brain, as it goes through that, coup contra coup will scrape on all those things at the bottom. There's other things that happens. The cortex is different density of the white matter. And so it shifts a little bit more and it goes through this axonal shearing. And that's why in concussions, you can't tell for a couple of days how much injury you've had. But um, but yeah, so here's here's the um the lesson here. Don't hit your head. That's what I would suggest. Don't let it happen. Uh, drive safely. Leave plenty of room between you and the guy in front of you. I'm talking to you, six-speed, six-speed golf. You better take it easy when you're going through Ohio because they drive crazy like. Yeah, they do. And they like to pull you over too. Oh, yeah. I've heard. I'd have no idea. Yeah. You know, in all the times, in all the travels and the 700 talks that I did would be in 700 different towns. And I would have rented a car, you know, and often the rental cars have out-of-state licenses and they will pull you over more often with out-of-state licenses. And I wrote a book about travel and I looked this up and it was actually research from my alma mater, George Mason. What they found was that they pulled them over more out of town, not because they don't like people from out of town, but because they knew people from out of town wouldn't go back to contest the ticket. So they it was free money. So be careful out there, Deb. I'm going to. Okay, good. Speed limit, all six feet, old left foot six feet. Okay, yeah. sorry. I'm going to stop being me. Okay. So this picture is a, of uh, the homunculus. And the homunculus is this great map developed by Wilder Penfield, a neurosurgeon, Canadian. And he was the first to map out the entire motor and sensory cortex. For those of you listening at home, it's a strip. If you use your index finger and your long finger and you throw it over the top of your head, right in the middle, it's about right there, about where your headphones would lie. Yeah, like a strip of, of normal size headphones. Perfect. And in fact, the headphones is better because it comes down to about the ear on both sides. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for uh, wearing headphones, lady in the back. Um, you're welcome. Yep. Yep. You're my favorite student. Actually, you're <laughs> my old <laughs> student. So you're also my least favorite student. So this is great. Well, thanks. That's, yeah. uh, I'm sorry. I'm Dave. happy I can fill all these roles for you. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, I'm a wreck. Okay. Um, but if you blow this up on all sides, uh, what you get is a homuncular man here. And it's a man, and you can tell he's a man from the sensory and not so much the motor cortex. And if I have to explain to you why that is a uh, favorite student, that's uh, a whole different discussion. But you can you can see his uh sexual organ, let's say on the sensory homunculus, not in the motor homunculus. Um, so it's homunculus, man. If you look him up, uh, we'll put it in the show notes, but it's this really creepy guy with a small head, a ginormous mouth and ginormous hands. So this is why hands-on learning works. That's the hands. They're like antennas. They're huge. And if you can get something tactile in their hands, it really, really helps. You know, one of the things I hope to say tomorrow that I don't forget, and maybe I'll put in a teaser slide so I remember, there was a great book out a few years ago. It was called Brain Rules. John Medina was the guy. And he said, if you're ever losing an audience, like if you're losing your students, there's four things that you can do to bring them right back. Four things that humans will always pay attention to. One, Sex. what's that? Sex. Okay, look, you're my favorite student student, but try not to steal my punchline because well, I'm getting- I just, well, I'm so proud of myself that I know one of those things. 
things. Well, you knew BDNF too. Oh. And you got all kinds of stories about travel. Settle down. But yeah, sex is one of them. You're right. Sex is one of them. <laughs> okay. So um, the first one is, can I eat it? Will it eat me? So the can I eat it, we're always willing to pay attention to food. Will it eat me? Um, risk, danger that something's going to attack you. Can I mate with it? Will it mate with me? Or as Deb would say, sex. <laughs> can, I, can I mate with it? Will it mate with me? Reproductive have I ever Have I ever told you that one of my features about me is that I'm just very blunt. I think I've heard that quite a few times out of your mouth. <laughs> I'm blunt, damn it. Yeah. Sex! The kid in the back says sex! You know what's weird? My wife, who's a PT, is in the next room taking another Zoom class about something about tibial oh. about sex. <laughs> who knows? Who knows? I don't know what she's doing there. No, it's on tibial torsion. Some mm. sort of problem at the hip where you get sciatica. So mm. I'm yelling sex at the top of my lungs and she's in the room. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, hon. Sorry. Sorry. I'll so yeah. Quiet. So um, can I eat it? Will it eat me? Can I mate with it? Will it mate with me? And then the last one is patterns. So we're always looking for patterns. And when I was traveling a lot, it sucked because you never knew what the pattern was because every rental car was different. Every hotel was different. How to get there was different. The room was set up different. It was impossible. Different people in the room every day. And it drove me nuts after a while. There was no patterns there. So. Hmm. Pete, we asked people to donate to our Venmo account to help us keep this podcast up and running. One of the things that I would like people to know about us is, if they don't already know it, is that we're pretty passionate about neuroscience and our practices and sharing this valuable information with the world. And personally, I hope people are enjoying it. I think they are based on the number of downloads that we have, although I still don't understand what all of those numbers mean. And one of the things we would like to do going forward is bring people more value through our interactions with them, this podcast, and, you know, just just making it easier for people to apply research-based concepts in their practices or their recoveries. So I think people might like to know that we're working on these things from the back end and whether or not people donate, are able to donate, we appreciate them listening and sharing the podcast with others. What are your thoughts on that? That's true. Um, and we do have a Venmo account. Do you remember the address? I do. It's at neurons. At neurons. That's pretty simple. It is. And it's in our title. So if you want to help out, look, we do put a lot of work into this and we want to keep it going. And, uh, you know, as Deb said, it's not the easiest thing in the world. Yes, we giggle a lot. And yes, we're having a ball doing it, but uh, we could use your support. The other thing is that a certain percentage, 20%, is going to go to the... The Brain Injury Association of America? That's it. And they help folks who have had a brain injury, family caregivers, and they also help medical professionals who do research and treatment. It sounds like a nice organization, and I'm glad that you told me about it. Yep. We want to support all people that have had brain injury. And we can do it through the podcast, but we also do it through a 20% donation of what we make if you donate at Neurons. Yeah. And we have goals for the future of this podcast. And one thing that we'd really like to do is be able to bring our listeners a little bit more. And the only way that we're going to be able to do that is if we have some funding behind us. Mm, that's true. Yeah. Okay, great. Thanks, guys. Thanks. So this, this is a picture um, drawn by Leonardo da Vinci. It's the da Vinci man. You know, the one where it shows that your arm length, if you straight across is equal to how tall you are. It's just about accurate. So if you spread both your arms way out like a bird, that's how tall you are. Pretty crazy. Da Vinci was very big on machines and he mechanized, he made the first robot, crazy mm -hmm. sauce. They've replicated it from his drawings and it works. And it was of a, a robot in um, shining armor and they would be able to fool the enemy thinking they had a lot more troops because these 
people would be marching around these robots. So he was very big on the mechanistic view of the brain. This idea that the brain is like, like you know how the heart is a pump and the kidneys are filters and the bones are levers and the muscles are pulleys and it's just a bunch of machines inside a big machine. Well, when it comes to the brain, that kind of doesn't work. So the machine I'm showing is called the Rube Goldberg machine. And it's this, you've seen these before. You throw down a marble, it hits another marble, which then hits a domino, which then knocks down all the dominoes. And then it goes down a path and then it does something, right? These complicated machines. But the problem with the machine metaphor for the brain is that if any of those pieces breaks, the whole system goes down. So you have a car, Deb, let's say you go out one day and uh, and one piece of the tens of thousands of parts of that car is missing. You can't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. What piece? One of the two cables to the battery. Can't start the darn thing. Yeah. So the brain isn't like that. And uh, you know, I played four years of high school football. Let's put it this way. Anybody who's hit their head ever has lost some neurology. But after you're 30, 35 years old, you start to lose neurons. So that's not a great metaphor because you know a machine will break down if it doesn't have the part, but the brain will go on and control every one of the 86 trillion cells in your body. So a better metaphor is this. What I'm showing is a, it's called a murmuration of starlings, these birds that do these amazing dances in the sky. Why is this a better metaphor for your brain? So first of all, there's a lot of starlings. There's probably, I don't know, what would you estimate there? Oh my Deb? goodness. I'm, I'm going to say- I don't know. That's a lot. 40, 50,000 maybe? Got to be. Here's another one. This is a bigger uh, murmuration. So so yeah. So how's your brain like a murmuration of starlings? So first of all, you have a lot of neurons, 86 billion, um, and there's a lot of birds. So some of those birds can die and that murmuration will go on. And uh, some of your neurons can die and your brain will go on. Uh, it's highly changeable. That's highly changeable. And your brain is highly changeable in a very short amount of time, neuroplastically, if you do the right kinds of things. And I'll tell you what those are. And then the other thing is the rules for flying in a situation like this better be simple. Like It's hard to explain this unless, unless you see it, but these starlings are just packed together and they're forming these crazy shapes. One of them looks like an elephant. We're looking at an elephant now. Mm-hmm. Now it's turning into like a badger. And now we got a cat and now a turtle and yeah, it's just going all over the place, but they have to do these really great. You can't even get fighter pilots to do this kind of work. I mean, you know, how do they know how to do this? Well, this was a job I hoisted on my wife, Isla, and we were driving, driving to a soccer tournament somewhere. Both my kids, uh, played soccer. My my son just played his first collegiate game yesterday. How'd yeah, it go? He started. And awesome. it's got they got 45 kids on the team and he started. He's not starting the position he wants, but I think they he's undeniable as an athlete. So they've had to find something to do with him. Awesome. Um yeah, it was awesome. But yeah, so we're driving to a soccer tournament and I said, hey Isla, can you because I keep talking about these starlings in my talk, can you tell me why they don't hit each other? So she found these articles. Um, it was these three like crazy aviary experts in Saskatchewan or someplace. And they were looking at why do birds not kill each other in these high trafficked areas? So what they did is they took this big wind tunnel and they perched. It was a tunnel, right? And they put fans on either end and they perched the birds from the same flock to fly towards each other by turning on the fans. They forced them to fly towards each other. And they noticed when they slowed it down, they never hit each other because they always went right. So to avoid each other, they went right, proving that we're correct and the Brits are full of it. You got to go right. <laughs> you told a story in the Doro and Lynette uh, podcast. You told a story about how there was a, a sign, uh, one of those lit signs on the highway saying, there's somebody on the wrong side of the road and they might be about to hit you. Oh, yeah. I'm going to Florida. I need to look out for that. That was in they, Florida? They, yeah, they do that in Florida, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, don't drive on the wrong side of the road. So for that sort of bird, and I forget what kind of bird it was, they always went right. With starlings, what they do is very quickly triangulate the movement of two or three animals that are right around them. And based on that information, they know which way to go, up, down, left, right, or whatever, or slow down or speed up. Mm. So that means that, and this, I don't know, I would say probably about a distance of maybe a half a mile between birds in these murmurations, but they're all communicating through the other birds to each other. And that's very much like the brain. We always think about this is the only area for that. And that's the only area for this. And this is Broca's area. And this is Wernicke's area. And this is where eyesight is, but it's highly plastic in some of the same ways that the murmuration. So if you want to think about brain plasticity, this murmuration is probably a pretty good metaphor. So let me give you three rules of the brain. I think these are the only real rules that you need. Neuroscientists have a lot more rules than this, but I'm breaking it down to three rules of the brain. So the first one is repetitive practice rules to the brain. 
We are what we repeatedly do. Aristotle put it that way 2,400 years ago. I don't know a lot of the numbers. I'm a musician. I can only imagine the number of, of repetitions I've done uh, playing drums. Um, I know, you know, Steph Curry, probably the great jump shooter in the NBA, he probably did a million repetitions in high school of his jump shot. The problem that you would have is how are you going to vector in these very high numbers? And that really, I think, relates to how difficult the skill is, how long they need to know it, and the level of expertise they need. But it also speaks to some other elements of the, the three rules of the brain. So, But repetitive practice, we are what we repeatedly do. The good news is that's the basis of neuroplasticity. Here's the bad news. It's the basis of neuroplasticity because you can repeat being anxious or being a bigot or being sexist or being addicted. There's all kinds of stuff that you can do. So neuroplasticity is a double-edged sword. Be careful about what you repetitively practice. Second rule of the brain is challenge. You always have to work on the edge of your ability. Otherwise, you'll just go into your comfort zone and you won't be able to get any better. For those of you trying to get better that have had a brain injury, you're always chipping away at your present active ranges of motion. But we've talked about a lot in this podcast. You know, how do you measure getting better? You can time things, you can count the number of repetitions, how much weight you're doing. You know, if you can quantify how well you're doing it, what were some of the other ones? The lady in the back, her brain went quiet for a minute. I like the way she <laughs> she mentions that. I'm sorry, I cannot answer this one. Like, oh, my, there's something my, I have to remember right my, now. My, I got mixed up. <laughs> <laughs> but we also talked about like phasia and you could record your voice. Yeah. Well, we, we talked about recording movements too, because the changes are subtle sometimes. And if you can compare those videos over time, and look at the way that you're moving, you might see that change is occurring. But when you're in it, it's kind of hard to see it in the moment. If you think it's kind of foolish to videotape yourself moving, very high-end athletes do this all the time. They get into a kinematics lab and they get somebody who really knows about the physiology and says, we think that if you hold your head a half an inch lower, you're going to gain two tenths of a second. So do that. And they, they do this by videotaping. So yeah, videotape yourself. So anyway, challenging. So it's repetitive. Always make what you're repeating challenging, chipping away at your present active ranges of motion. We talk about the just right challenge in occupational therapy. And that means, you know, it can't be too easy because then it's really not a challenge. You can lie to yourself and think that it's a challenge to make yourself feel good, like, oh, look what I just accomplished. You can also make something too challenging so that it can't be done. So if you find the just right challenge where you know that. It, like you're saying, you chip away at it. Over time, you will likely achieve that goal and then you make another goal. Because if it's too challenging, it's it's frustrating and it's, it's easier to quit when you feel frustrated. Yeah, I, I like that idea. The problem with rehab generally is it focuses on this extraordinarily high bar that let's say on your hemiparetic side, if you're a stroke survivor, you're supposed to be functional with it. Yeah. Well, a lot of people don't necessarily reach that. And so the focus is on compensatory stuff with, with the good side and stroke that's often the thing. But if you celebrate any movement that they have, then the just right challenge would be perfect because then you might say, well, excuse me, I just burp. Oh, God bless you. Thank you. You're welcome. I hope I don't do that tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> but if you focus on the just right challenge, then, um, then you could celebrate small incremental steps on the way to function. Mm -hmm. And you get that feeling of reward, of achievement. Like, oh, look what I just did. You know, what you're talking about is those are the challenges that help us feel good. Like, I'm glad I pushed myself a little bit. I remember when I went to school for so many years, near the end of getting my master's degree, I thought, I am going to get a job and do nothing. That's all I'm going to do is get up, go to work and go home. Well, that only lasted for a little while. And then I got bored. I got bored with my <laughs> life and I had to find another challenge. And I, I sometimes wonder if people who give up, they, they don't feel a sense of satisfaction with life and with themselves because they don't put themselves into the uh, position where they can push and achieve something just to prove to themselves that they can. Yeah. And you said you got bored. And sometimes I, I, I wonder sometimes if people are able to get bored the way they used to. Because 
because, you know, I think some of the best work I've done is when I've been really bored. Mm. One of the great things of being in clinical research is you're bored some of the time. There's just nothing going on. You're waiting for a grant or you're waiting for an appointment. The guy couldn't make it till four. And so you're sitting there doing nothing. You're like, I'm bored. And then you start to write or do something. But I wonder if I, I wonder if boredom is an essential part of creativity oh, because so. otherwise you're going to be on Instagram and mm-hmm. you know how much fun that is. Actually, I don't because I don't have it, but I don't have an inst. Well, I think I do have an Instagram, but I never use it. I learned today from listening to the Doro and Lynette episode that you downloaded it because they had something on it. Oh, that's right. So I do have, see, I haven't even, I I just don't. Um, Yeah. That's why they say, you know, when you're taking a shower, all of a sudden you get the answer to your question or you get the idea that you've been looking for. The answer comes to you because you're not doing anything. You're just, you're in the shower. So I think it's important to build in downtime from stuff. We're not supposed to be doing something all the time. I do stuff in the shower. I would just like to point sure, that out. I'm sure you do. Um, <laughs> Wait, where did that come from? I was busting you and you turned around. Now you're busting me. Wait, I shower in the shower. <laughs> you're like, right. I'm not doing anything. What are you doing? Exactly. <laughs> well, it's so rote. Like you don't have to, nobody, most people don't think, okay, I'm going to reach for the shampoo now. Okay. Let me put some shampoo on my hand. Now my hair is wet. You know what I mean? It's like, it's very rare. Every once in a while I say, don't lose your balance. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that too. It's a slippery floor in here. So my daughter in New Jersey, the only daughter I have, she lives in New Jersey. They have this beautiful house, very big house, beautiful house. You have a... they have a slippery bathtub. And I've t- talked to her about this all the time. Why don't you get a bath mat in there so I can take a shower without worrying about you know, hurting myself? Yeah, you don't have said, any? She's here's like, what she said. She said, look, mom, you're in there. You're not thinking about anything. I want you to think <laughs> about your balance. It's like a balance challenge. Her her father-in-law fell in the shower. What? And I said, is there is this really what you want when people come and stay with you? You, you want to have to go in there when they're but- naked? Wait. And help them get up. Wait. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my God. There's blood everywhere in my nice tile. Um, Right. But you mean he fell in her shower? Uh Uh-huh. He did. And so this is her husband's father. Mm -hmm. Did he hurt himself? I guess not. I mean, he he eventually was able to get up. I don't know who helped. I'm pretty sure my daughter didn't help him. But um, Wow. That's that's crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It is crazy. We have the sandpaper sort of strips that you stick and they work great. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. It doesn't take much to make it safe. Yeah. I, I mean, we actually had bars put up. We want to. We want to make sure nobody gets hurt. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So back to the brain, or yeah. did you want to talk about something else? No, I want to. I think there's three things: repetitive. We had repetitive so far. Challenging. Right, and the last one is salience. And I know you know what that means, but the word means meaningful. If it's not important to you, it's not important to your brain. Focus on stuff that's meaningful. It's going to be a heck of a lot harder if they're not interested in it. You know, that drives cortical control. If it's meaningful, if it's not important to you, it's not important to your brain. That's the rule. That's actually Michael Mersenich that I've talked about several times, the guy who developed the cochlear implant, he's done a lot of neuroplasticity work. If it's not important to you, it's not important to your brain. But if it is important to you, man, your your brain will work as hard as it can to turn it into the machine that will help you do that thing. Okay. So I got a quick study. I think I'm this talk might be a little long, so I'm going to have to talk faster. Um, this well, is, I kind of interrupted you a little bit. We got, that's true. That's true. So this is a picture of Alvaro Pascaliani. He's a great neuroscientist. He works at a, it actually says Harvard Medical School he, and he's an MD, PhD. But I always do the same joke with this slide where I go, um, he's a, an MD and a PhD because what, what else would you do after you get your MD? You go, I want a PhD now. Right? He works at a school and it's it says Harvard, but I'm going to say it's called a Havard, Haverford, Havarated, Havar, Havud. I don't know. It's a small liberal arts college. It's around here somewhere. I don't know. Anyway, that joke is really funny in rural Mississippi, and I've done that joke, and they just fell out laughing. Ah, it's talking about Harvard. Anyway, so let's get into this. So, how much of your brain can you change in 100 hours? That's what he wanted to try to answer. So, what he did is he got somebody in fMRI, and an fMRI will measure neuroplastic change. And there's a picture up here. Of of somebody's fingertip, their index fingertip being brushed with a loofah. Very sophisticated. Oh, I thought it was a spatula. Uh, 
it's a loofah just because that's a little bit rougher. Okay. And so when they put them in the fMRI machine and brush their index finger with the loofah, what lights up is, and anybody who's listening to this podcast knows the right side of the brain controls the left side of the body and vice versa. And the sensation is also vice versa. So if you brush the right side fingertips, the left side of the brain lights up. Then they blindfold her. And uh, in this experiment, the blindfold is like serious business. It's not pin the tail on the donkey. It's not a, you know, a bandana or something. The eyelids are adhesive bandage shut. And then there's eye caps that go over that. And then the whole head is bound and it shows this mummified head. Basically, I did this on my daughter as an experiment uh, when she was about maybe 10, nine or 10. And man, she was pretty pissed off by the end of it. I was like, this is a little bit longer. They put film in, in part of it, photographic film. And then they take that film, the person's left in darkness. They take the film out and they see if it's been exposed at all. If any light shows up, they rewrap them. Yeah. Anyway, they do this for a hundred hours. So they have a blindfold for a hundred hours, including the period of time when she's sleeping. And when she's awake, they teach her Braille. And Braille is done through that same fingertip that they that they uh, put the loofah on. So at the end of the hundred hours, they do the experiment again. Again, and they brush the pad of the index finger on the right dominant side. And what lights up is not that those few little pixels that was representing that one fingertip, but the next picture is the entire occipital lobe is lighting up. So that's where vision is processed. So now she's seen essentially through her fingertip. There, there's an old saying about this. We don't see with our eyes. We see with our brain. You can see with anything. You can use a fingertip. There's these experiments where they have people that are blind and they put these huge arrays like on their back where there's a lot of open area. They hook it up to a camera and that puts these little pressure points through their back in a certain pattern that looks like what the camera is seeing. And they can see people walking by and things like that. But all of that's going to be forever processed in the visual cortex. That's one part of it. Huge neuroplastic change. Your primary sense completely rewired in 100 hours. This is the second part. They take off the blindfold. They send her home. They have her back 24 hours later. Now her eyes are being used as her eyes and her fingertips as her fingertips. Uh, they do the experiment again. It's right back to where it started. So complete wiring and rewiring all in 124 hours. That's how plastic you are. So this neuroplasticity thing can happen quite quickly. So this is somebody who had a hemispherectomy. It's where they take out an entire an entire hemisphere of the brain, half your brain, half your brain's gone. It's a treatment for epilepsy. Beautiful young lady had a hemispherectomy when she was a, a child. And um, I'll just show you just a little bit of the video of the seizures that she was having. She they, they came every five seconds or so. And every time they have a seizure, if you have epilepsy, it tears through some neurons. So you're having brain damage every time you do it. I only remember my very first seizure. I was at my daycare playing, and the next thing I knew, I was in an ambulance. It was to the point where I was having seizures every three minutes, and that wasn't cool. I have half a brain. When people meet me, they have no idea. So here's some picture, she's falling. And she always fell. She'd always fall to her left, only to her left over and over again. It just boom. They finally got to the point where they had to, and this is this little girl and she keeps falling to her left, falling to her left. So they decide they have to take out, they have to do a hemispherectomy. Usually what they do, because the brain has the consistency of jello, they go in with like suction and they'll just suck out a little bit of the brain where they think the epileptic storm is happening. But they tried that with her. They finally said, we got to take out an entire hemisphere. And they did. Life now with half a brain is, for me, is no different than anybody else. I've been married four years. I live on my own with my husband. I'm really glad my parents did what they did because I wouldn't be where I am now if I had had the surgery any later or had waited any longer. And her story is freaking remarkable because there's a lot of kids. There's a couple of kids that went on and got master's degrees. There's one kid that was a chess champion after he had half his brain taken off, a, a state chess champion. A bunch of kids went on and got associate's degrees. And, you know, sometimes they don't do great, but if it's done early, they often do 
amazingly well. So um, she went on and just did fantastic. And now, you know, it's just like this gorgeous video. And if people aren't crying tomorrow when they see this, I'll put it in the show notes so you guys can watch it. Um, but, uh, you know, she got married. Here she is doing ballet. You know, it's not ballerina ballet, but she's doing it and she's just on it. Like, how cool is that? That is so cool. I am a very positive person. A lot of times I'll joke that they took out the the mean side of my brain and they only left the happy side. <laughs> yeah. So anybody who's not fascinated by this stuff it just doesn't doesn't get it. There's her and her husband. Well, it kind of takes away a lot of excuses, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, what pisses me off is she's doing all this with half a brain and I'm like, yeah. having, I'm having trouble with a whole brain. What's up well, with that? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So there's not going to be a dry high in the house when, no. when I do that one. And I'm suspecting that that will be like the end of my talk. I do have an, another thing or two, but we'll see how it goes. But I'll take it through these other slides. This is a slide that shows the fMRI of somebody's moving. It's actually a conglomeration of a lot of studies. And you know, it shows the motor and sensory cortex. This is the same, a huge bunch of studies with mental practice. And you'll see that if you mentally practice something, the same part of the brain lights up. And then in action observation, the same part of the brain lights up, except it adds the occipital lobe where vision is because you're observing somebody doing, doing it. In all three of those cases, the motor and sensory cortex lights up and your muscles fire minutely. Um, in movement, obviously they fully fire, but in the other two, they fire minutely. So you can get lots of practice without moving at all. So are you going to explain to them what action observation is? Yep, sure I am. Okay. But I'm I'm starting to look at the time just tonight. I have an hour, I think it's an hour and 15 minutes. And there's actually supposed to be a little thing that they do where I'm going to get them up out of their seats, throwing balls Ooh, around and trying, nice. to, trying to measure things. Mm-hmm. And uh, so- I get the feeling I'm going to run out of run out of time, but but that's okay. So there's my talk. Thanks so much for letting me do that. It gives me practice, and so let's let's rewind. I've practiced how to get into the building, how to knock on the door, <laughs> how to call the lady when I'm in a panic, how mm-hmm. to drive home from the school. Yeah, I need to practice that. And then you gave me the chance to practice old talk. So tomorrow's going to be breeze. That's going to be perfect. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome that you're doing that. That's why I think that any any class that we can teach where students actually have to do something besides just sit and listen is so much better. Okay. Well, I'm going to have to hurry my talk up, talk up so they have the last 15 minutes to go throw balls around. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to see if they So can... they're going to throw balls with each other. Are they going to learn anything while they're doing that or just- No, no. I don't care about learning. No. Um, oh. Yeah. So the, <laughs> the idea is to come up with a game with the balls and then measure it pre and post after you've done some repetitive practice. Ah. But one of them is handwriting. Mm-hmm. So I would have them handwrite with the wrong hand. Okay. That kind of deal. Uh-huh. And so we'll see how this goes. And then they would measure pre-post. Just a super simple way of maybe the way a professor might do this with a short assignment. Mm-hmm. Can we show in the very short term that they've gotten better at whatever it is? But I get the feeling after talking about a lot of this stuff that learning uh, in rehab for OTs and PTs is, mm-hmm. is easier because we are so, we're so tactile and we're so up and around. And often it's, you know, it's quite a bit of physical work. Mm-hmm. It is. You know, something that you, when you were talking about the neurotransmitters, our, our emotions are linked and the um, chemicals that are released with emotions are important too. And I think that, um, you know, if they can understand that all of that, that's what helps form the memories of whatever it is that they're learning in the class. And emotions. I think mm-hmm, yeah. because emotions seal it in for us. And I remember, I remember the classes where we were, there was a lot of laughter. I loved going to those classes. We had fun. Yeah. You know, now they're starting to say that if you look at a class, like in a grammar school and everybody's sitting quietly at their desk, that's a bad teacher. Yeah. Things got to get messy. They do have to get messy. Yeah. Emotions are the things that tell us what's important. That's why mm-hmm. they're there. Yeah. So be careful about what you get emotional about. Are you getting emotional about stuff on Facebook? Somebody's arguing some stupid point. That's probably not worth it. No. Because put it's that not, put that away. It's not important. It's but not. if but if you you know hold your grand, you have a grandson, right? Well, I have a, a grandson and two granddaughters, and then that's with the family that lives in Florida. And then I have another grandson and another granddaughter. They'll they'll be there too in the Florida. 
You know, I've done this in in some of my talks where my daughter calls me in the middle of the talk. So I'm gonna I'm gonna do it now. <laughs> hey Emma, what's up? Me again. Are you- um, not really. What are you doing? Uh, did you order more books? No. Just a whole lot of nothing. A whole lot of nothing. So you just want to chat? Well, I am in the middle of a podcast, but you know how you used to call me in the middle of classes? Yeah. Well, now you now you're on a podcast. So how about that? Oh, I am on your podcast. Yeah. Well, you're gonna be. No. Yes. Tell us about uh, what it's like to be in it's school because we. It's not Friday. It's, it's not Friday. She knows we record <laughs> on Fridays. Smart girl, I'm telling you. She so is. what's it like to be a, a pre-speech um, student? It's fine. It's fine, apparently. It's fine. <laughs> yes. Okay. All right, sweetie. I'll talk to you soon. I want to like to not be on the podcast. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> eh, it's not going to happen. Go on it. All right. Talk to you soon. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> My kids, both of them ordered books today. And it's. I think it was about. They spend about $1,000. Um, I think. Well, they don't have them. They haven't ordered them all, but my son is about 250 and she's probably at about 110 or so. That's not too bad. But but here's the good thing. Hmm. Grandma's got a 529. Oh, nice. So, yeah. So we got the BlackRock thing going and it's the first time we've used it. So we're going to be able to pay for a lot with that. That's yep. good. Thanks, Grandma. Yeah. Grandmas are good for something. Grandmas are good. You, you better. Do <laughs> you got your 529 for your grandkids? I got nothing. <laughs> you, got nothing. <laughs> you gave them plenty. Yeah. Okay, Deb. Anything else? No, this was good. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, everybody, for um, allowing me to practice my talk so now I won't be so nervous. I had fun. Yeah, I did too. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and, spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.